You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I wanna be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. You're about to hear a fantastic podcast with Alfred Yuri. He's going to tell you about how he saw a play, went home, and said, I can do that, and out popped Driving Miss Daisy. It's an amazing story. Wait till you hear it. Uh, but before we get to that, let me just tell you that this podcast with Alfred is brought to you by Reproductions. How many of you just started singing the Grease 2 song, Reproduction? Go ahead. Get it out of your system. Anyway, Reproductions has been the leading headshot printer nationwide for 30 years. They used to do mine when I was an actor. Uh, but that's not all they do. Reproductions has a team dedicated to video services for demo reel editing, scene production when you need new footage, and musical theater filming as well for high-quality vocal performances with a professional accompanist. Uh, their biggest difference is their turnaround time. Videos are delivered within five days of shooting and headshots as fast as the next day. I remember that from my acting days too, running out of headshots and needing them very quickly. You couldn't get them back in 19-something so quickly. Now, reproductions can get them to you the very next day. So go ahead, place an order online for headshots, retouching postcards, business cards, and video services at reproductions.com. They even offer free consults for scene production and any photo and video needs by calling 646-502-3700 or visit reproductions.com. And now on to the Pulitzer Prize winning Alfred Yuri. now with Game Pass. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Ken Davenport. You're listening to the Producers Perspective podcast. 
I'm very honored to have with us today the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, two Tony Awards, and an Academy Award to boot. I asked him to bring them all, but there's too many to carry. Please welcome Mr. Alfred Urey. Welcome, Alfred. Well, thank you, Ken, very much. So Alfred won that Pulitzer for his play Driving Miss Daisy, which he adapted into a movie, which won him an Oscar. Uh, it was the first of his Atlanta trilogy, which we're definitely going to talk about. Just the thought of writing a trilogy of plays and actually having them all be great. Um, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, it was followed up by uh, the Tony Award winning Last Night at Ballyhoo. That was number two. And then Parade, the musical with Jason Robert Brown, which is where I met Alfred years ago. Uh, additional work includes Love Music, The Robert Bridegroom, and one of those little movies that so many people love, Mystic Pizza. Oh, yeah. Well, I had four daughters at the time. So writing about girls was paramount to my life. Amazing. So what? So why playwriting? Tell me how, how that started for you. Why did you want to write plays? Well, I was a little boy in Atlanta, Georgia, and I thought the movies made up their own dialogue. I really, you know, I guess a lot of us thought that, but I really thought, you know, they turned on the cameras and the actors started talking and they shoot the movie. But plays I kind of knew because my mother liked plays a lot and my father didn't. And when they would come to Atlanta or they'd be like, she would take me. So I figured out somehow that you had somebody had to write them. And it was the heyday of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And uh, I loved those things. And uh, I was oriented toward the, toward the theater, not the movies at all. So what was your first attempt at writing a play or a scene or something? My first attempt was in grade school, I guess. Uh, I think it was Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates. I haven't thought about that since then. That's uh, what we do. Like, we dig into the real deep stuff yeah, here. That was the, so uh, I don't know. I guess I had re- I read everything. It was even pre-television. It was during the war. I was a little boy. So I adapted things. And I, they never were performed, but I would imagine this kid was going to be that part and this guy was going to be that. And uh, that was, I remember, I think I did uh, Tom Sawyer, too. Any of these floating around anywhere? My, no, but I'll tell you what. I had this wonderful teacher in the sixth grade, Miss Harrison. And after all of Miss Daisy and all that stuff happened and I got invited to speak a lot, I spoke in Atlanta somewhere and I said that I had a teacher that inspired me, and uh, Miss Harrison was her name, and by God, she was there in the audience. You're kidding. Yeah, and uh, she did inspire me. She saved my stuff, because after she died, a friend, a cousin or a niece or something got in touch with me and said, in her papers, we found these things that you wrote. Isn't that amazing? You must have made her day thanking her for Some teachers just, I was lucky to, a lot of people feel like they had that special teacher. And I had one. Do you remember anything specific she said or did to inspire you, to set you on this path? No, she just said, write me some more. She, Oh, she she worked at the Atlanta Journal, I think, or the Constitution, one of those newspapers. Or she had, and she knew a lot of connections, and she took us down there to, to the press room to watch people work. And uh, I think I had written a little, little piece for my fifth grade or sixth grade, and... Uh, it got published in the little paper, and I think, I think it they might have run it at some Christmas time when they were desperate to fill up pages. They used to write a lot of put a lot of stupid stuff in the papers in those days. So I think that happened. So you're not the first writer actually to tell me that they dabbled in a little bit of journalism. 
uh, I think it was Warren Light and also maybe David Auburn. What do you think about writing journalism or writing in that world helps make you a better playwright? I just wanted to write uh, the truth. Obviously, if you're writing, if you're writing for a newspaper, supposedly you're writing the truth. It's true these days, of course. Of course. <laughs> but I think it's hard to remember. It's like I remember I never was much of an athlete, and I, they, my father had me take golf lessons. And I remember he said, the only thing you have to do is keep your eye on the ball. And he said, that's very hard to do. Very hard to keep your eye on the ball all the time. And that's really what writing is, is keeping your eye on the ball, don't you think? I mean, it's trying to tell the truth when you can. And it's much better to tell the truth if you know what you're talking about. Because otherwise, you are just out there grabbing and... So where, do you, where would you say you got your best training as a writer? Was it in school? Was it at a journalism desk? Where did you really learn to cut your teeth? When I came to New York, from Brown, I graduated from Brown uh, in the late 50s, and I had a, another guy that I wrote with, his name was Robert Waldman, and he I came to New York. I didn't know anybody in the city of New York except him because he was from Brooklyn, and uh, I managed to live with a lot of other guys that also were in New York, but they were like working. They had real jobs. And uh, they paid most of the rent. And I remember I did the shopping for us. And I had $7 a week from each of us. There were four of us. So I had $28 a week to shop for. And I would do that. And I paid some rent. And uh, we started, we applied. Frank Lesser was running this writer's program. And we got in it, Bob and I. And the best thing about it was that we would write songs, lyrics and music, and once a month we would go to Frank and he would critique the songs, which was a free graduate school. And he said, writing, he was talking about lyrics. He said, writing is like, if you're in the audience, it's like a freight train's going to go by. And it's just going to go by. There's going to be a blue car and a milk car and a, Caboose, but they're going to go by. So you got to make sure that you're clear, that everybody knows what you're saying. Don't allude too much, just say it. And uh, I kept that in mind uh, when I started writing. And, you know, that you had to be rather simple. And at, the, at one point there, I was also teaching Shakespeare in high school. And it was a school where you taught the same course three times a year. So I taught first Romeo and Juliet, and then the Scottish play, and then Romeo and Juliet, and then the Scottish play. And I realized that Shakespeare said everything three times. You know, like the mad scene in the Scottish play, when uh, these guys, the doctor's talking to the nurse, and he says, Lady Macbeth has been so crazy. She's been walking around and talking in her sleep. And then she comes in, and she walks in her sleep, and she goes off. And he see the nurse that got there, she was talking in her sleep. She was so crazy. Uh, I mean, it's just all set up. So be clear, I think, is what I wanted to do. Uh, and not, and eventually not try to copy somebody else. Because when you start out, you, you don't, I wasn't blessed enough to be able to just start from the back writing stuff that came from my gut. That takes a little kind of undressing that I was probably wasn't prepared to do. Some people were just born, I guess, like Tennessee Williams, which just <coughs> born that way. You knew how to do it. It took me a while to learn that. But if you could do that and make it clear, 
pretty good. So what were your first shows that got up on the boards? You want to know what my first play was? Ever? Yes. Driving with Stacy. I swear. I was a lyric writer. I had written books for musicals, but never a play. And is that part of that process of the books for musicals that you wrote? And I know Little Johnny Jones revival you did, right? Uh, and was that part because you weren't ready or prepared, as you say, to access the... I was scared. Scared. Uh, I did a show called Here's Where I Belong, based on East of Eden. Music by Bob Wallen, book by Terrence McNally. Uh, we were all young. And we went to uh, Philadelphia, and it was produced by Mitch Miller. Remember Mitch? Mm. Sing along with Mitch. He produced it, and it was a disaster for us all. Uh, and the director didn't know what he was doing, and none of us sort of knew what we were doing. Terrence, I learned from Terrence how to drink in the afternoon. And, <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say I learned from Terrence how to structure Act Two, and we all learned. Well, I I think. With, with books of musicals, you just learn by doing eventually. And I worked a lot at good speed. So I knew the fundamentals of playwriting. I just had never written a play. And a uh, woman I knew used to ask me to go to see things and see what I thought of them because she thought about bringing them in. So she sent me to see this play in Stamford or somewhere. And it was a two-character play. It was a black woman in Zimbabwe and a white woman in St. Paul. They never met, but they exchanged letters all the time. I said, and after she said, what do you think? I said, my God, I could write a better play than that. And it just sure enough, you did. popped into my head that I would write a play about my grandmother and her driver. And once I really sort of got my shit together, can we say that you can say everything. I love it when we get the explicit rating, so well, yes, please. It's a great expression. Anyway, when I got my shit together, I sat down and wrote it. So, obviously, I want to get into that, but before we do, you said this this musical you were working on with Terrence and Bob was a disaster. So, after that disaster, which is early on in your career, and you're struggling, I assume, at this point, how do you pick yourself up after that? And keep doing this. It opened and closed one night. That's a disaster, right? That uh, would qualify, yeah. Would qualify. Uh, I guess just being stupid and being... It was before the days of, uh, pardon the expression, podcasts or online things. So they weren't, weren't, but the reviews were scathing. And as they are cruel to, to young people who are... I guess or when you're older... And you've done enough, they kind of roll off your back a little bit. But uh, they were cruel, and I I started teaching. I had children, too, which was not the oh cleverest gosh. thing in the world. So this was like when, when something... Well, I got married, you know, I got married in the days when if you wanted to live with a, quote, nice girl, you got married. So we got married when we were 22, and by then I guess I was 30, so I had three kids. And uh, I mean, it was crazy. That's high stakes, though. So yeah, it was. It's sort of these days. It sounds more sort of high wire than it was because everybody, everybody who was straight was kind of got married. So, uh, 
And people that weren't straight didn't get married. I mean, things have changed so much that anyway, I, uh, I just, I had another idea. I guess that's what it was. It took a while and I sort of just kept going. So you got this idea to write a play about your grandmother and her tribe. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about the, from the, I have an idea to starting to write. Did it start to come out right away? Did Nothing I do starts to come out right away. Nothing. I, I learned from Frank Lesser. He said, and it's gotten more true as I age, he said, I write slow and I throw out fast. And that kind of happens. I edit myself probably too much. Uh, and one day, it did just start to come out. And I wrote it. And uh, I had a wonderful agent. I don't know if you've been around long enough. She's been gone for 20 years. Named Flora Roberts. Oh, I loved talking to her. She was a character. She was. And she had a voice lower than yours and mine put together. <laughs> and she was very hard on me. Very hard on me. Harder than on Bob Waldman. We were both clients. And uh, she read that. First play I'd ever written, and she said, I remember she said it on the phone, she said, I like this. She said, I can sell it. And I think that was probably the greatest thing that ever I heard, for her to say that. And she took it to Andre Bishop, who wanted to do it. I knew him a little bit, because I knew Wendy and that whole crowd of people. And we did it at Upstairs at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, Upstairs at Playwrights Horizons was 73 seats and uh, hookers were working some of that building on 42nd Street uh, and it did well and it got mildly good reviews P- people wanted to see it It's right away it just started to build and then after 10 weeks there they moved it moved to the John Hausman Theater and uh Stayed there for a couple of years, and movie came along, and life changed. And what do you think she meant? I, I found it very interesting. She said two things. She just didn't see. I, I like this. She said, "I like this, and I can sell it." What about it made it saleable at the time? Do you think? Well, I think it was original. Nowadays, people have written all kind of things that are like it, but it was the first about race relations seen that way. It was original. It was a three-character play. It had virtually no set. And I don't know she said, I can sell it. She just knew what she could sell. Like when you produce something, you feel, you know, what what you can sell. I don't know. You know, if you knew what you'd done right, you'd do it all the time. And how much of it was true? How much did you fabricate? People think, I think about, or there are lots of plays about historical characters or people that people know. How much did you have to turn up the dial on the truth or modify? Well, that's what's hard about writing. Because it's all true, but it's transposed. And in truth, my grandmother uh, didn't have a son. She had my mother, was her only child. So those scenes with... Miss Daisy and her son are me and my mother. And she lived with us. She didn't have a house by herself. But my Aunt Clemmie did have a house by herself. So I just... So that's fascinating to me. So 
why the change? Like, why were you like, I want to make it a son? I wanted a scene with, with. It came to me that way. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I just occurred to me, and I thought, okay, the son and his wife are not going to have children because I don't want to deal with that. And I knew some interesting couples in Atlanta that were childless, and the the wife happened to be a fashionista, which I sort of pictured that wife as, and it just coalesced. It came together. So talk to me about this trilogy. I didn't think of it as I did I that was my big question. Did you say I wrote about it? I I liked writing about Atlanta. I uh after that the, the next thing that happened about Atlanta, I got, you know, I got Miss Daisy and went to Hollywood and I won the Oscar and so for a while there I was <clears throat> writing movies which turned my head a bit and uh paid me money. And I still had children, although they were older, but at least I could. Uh, but I, you know, I, I focused my attention on that, which was really not fulfilling to me. It was, it was like doing donkey work for other people, except they paid you good money to do it. Uh, but along in there, I got a call from Hal Prince, who I knew sort of, because, and Hal said, uh, oh, Oh yeah, it was. He uh, he had read the first draft of my play last night at Ballyhoo, and he said, "You know, it's really interesting. Those those kind of Jews. Why were they so anti-Semitic?" And I said, "Well, it was about the Leo Frank case." And he said, "You know, I know that name, but I don't know much about it." So tell me. So I started telling him. He had his glasses, and I put them on top of his head, and he said, that's a musical. And I thought, wow, maybe it is. Uh, and I called my mother, and I said, Mother, guess what? Hal Prince wants to do a musical with me. And she said, oh, my God, it's Leo Frank, isn't it? I don't know how she knew that. Really? And it was going to be Sondheim. Steve was going to do it. But he had just done uh, Passion. And I think he didn't want two things like that. So Daisy Prince had worked with Jason on uh, Songs of a New World. And Jason was about 23. And uh, he wrote some songs after a while. And we talked. And he was just... The first two songs he wrote were the first two songs in it. The Old Red Hills of Home and the, and the song for the kids. And uh, they were staggering. And he only knew what he knew because he'd listened to me. We talked for months before he wrote them. And he'd never been south anywhere except Miami, maybe. But he, you know, he just got it. And clearly, he was very talented and very dear to work with. And I loved him. And I was, he was younger than my children. And uh, it happened. And then, then Ballyhoo. Ballyhoo happened on Broadway first, and this today I believe is the twentieth anniversary. He reminded me of the opening of Parade in Lincoln Center. Yeah, so that's where we met. So just for the listeners out there, I was lucky enough to be the company manager on one of the first readings when Matthew Broderick did. Oh boy, I thought it was good. I so did I, uh, and then I company managed the workshop in Toronto. Oh boy. <laughs> 
I forgot that. That's where I met you. Yes, With Daniel Gordon. Goldfarb was your assistant. Yeah. I just had Daniel on the podcast a little bit ago. Uh, Garth Trebinsky. Yes. And somehow or another, all the meetings, there was this big, there was a urinal or something, a big room. Wow. Uh, and of all the cities to do parade in, that was about the worst because they didn't know what it was. By the way, this week, the Roundabout's doing a reading of Parade. Do you know that? I do know that with a very, very in-demand musical theater talent as well, Leo Frank. And I'm delighted that he's so young because Leo Frank was 27. I think Ben is, what, 25? Yeah, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about Ben Platt doing it. And it's funny you say that because I just came from a lunch where someone said, did you hear that there's this reading of Parade going with Ben Platt? But he's so young. But sounds like he's well, age-appropriate. I think, yeah, and the fact that this happened, to, she was 23 at the time, and the people who've done it, I don't really know how old they all were, but they read older than that, and uh, I think it's a great idea, because the younger, the more vulnerable, and Ben's not a teenager, that's, I think it's great. So when you, how came up with this idea, right, after your turn, he's talking to you, you had written about it, or written about the subject, did you agree that it was a great idea for me? It's not like, oh, of course, let's do it. Well, a- I knew it was big. I knew that because I knew the story. I had always wanted to dramatize it from the time I was in high school mm-hmm. uh, because my family would never talk about the case. My grandmother was a socially, was a friend of Lucille Frank's. They were the same age. And my grandmother's sister was really very close to her and took the meals to Leo Frank sometimes. So they were involved. This all happened 20 years before I was born, but people didn't, wouldn't talk about the case. So I got really interested, and I was nosy. Why wouldn't they talk? I had to remember going on the, on the bus downtown to the library to look up stuff because nobody would tell me anything. And uh, I saw how interesting it was, and I realized it was almost like if you start, if you stick your finger in a lake and you make a whirlpool it just it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it evolved so very much that it always seemed theatrical. Then they did this made for TV uh, movie I think Jack Lemmon played the governor and uh, I thought well that's the end of that I'll never you know. Shortly after that I didn't think of it as a musical so Hal said that and I saw what he was talking about what, what is your process for writing? You say that it, it uh, takes you a long time, but do you write at the same time every day? Do you set a schedule, same place? I start up. A lot of my writing is getting myself to do it. I have a, I don't just sit down. I have to feel it and hear it. Once I get going, it's pretty good. It takes me a while to get going. It takes months. Uh my late friend Pete Gurney was able to write three or four plays a year, which always knocked me out because <coughs> uh, maybe I've written three or four plays my whole life. And he, you know, I just don't, I can't do it that fast. So you come, will you come up with the idea and then it may just take you three to four months for it to come out? Or Well, I come up with an idea and then I shape it, I push it around. I think, well, you have to think. I have to. What is this really about? I don't. That's what I. I. My my idea is something I'd like to write about. 
my grandmother and her driver. And I said, okay, well, what is that really about? It's about two people that are together all the time that have almost no personal relationship, but they know, he knows everything about her. She knows almost nothing about him, but they are together for 30 years. So what, what motivates you? What, who gives what to who? Uh, but that took a while to come to that. And, uh, I had to have a third character because they had to have somebody to talk to. So who would that character be? That would be me. But it was not me, but it was... I felt better about it being a, a man than a woman because I, I like to write women and I've been around women all my life. I have four daughters and six granddaughters and on and on and on and on. So I like to write women, but I was comfortable with that about writing a man. So that's what happened. Did you know it would be the success that it was? <laughs> I thought... I better get my family. It was going to run five weeks at Playwrights Horizon. So I got them all. I didn't want them at the opening because that's, I didn't want to deal with that. Because that last time they came up for an opening, it was that thing that closed that night. So uh, uh, they came during the run. It just kind of grew. No, no. I thought it was going to run five weeks in and out. But I knew the night of the first preview, that was another uh, sort of watermark place in my life. Uh, Andre, Andre said to me, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you this, you're a playwright. And coming from him, you know, he's not a bullshitter, Andre. He doesn't... And I had respected him, so... So what did he mean by that, with both sides of that statement? Well, regardless of what happens, you're a playwright. What was he trying to tell you? Do it. Just do it. Uh... It just seemed to have whatever he thinks makes a playwright. I don't know what makes a playwright, makes a, something that people, he writes something somebody want to see. How much was rewritten of that play? Almost none. Well, it just came out. I, the other day I saw John Weidman at a party, and he was telling somebody that I, because we were close, and he said, Alfred gave me this thing that was like written on on wrapping paper and he said it was almost exactly like it opened to Playwrights Horizon pretty much when you're rewriting what do you rely on feedback from people do you go with your gut like oh this isn't you rewrite it rewrite reread it yourself I can only listen to a couple of people not my family hopefully the director hopefully hopefully that's been pretty good me and directors. I, I like, I respect directors. Uh, not so much actors. Uh, because you can't really trust that it's not about their part. And most actors I've worked with, particularly the good ones, are not into telling me how to write the play. You know, they're respectful of... Uh, but when the play... If it's something... If it's a subject that again, you didn't come from you, and the thing is sort of in trouble, that everybody kicks in and says, well, you know, in this scene, maybe this could happen. And I'm very vulnerable, and somebody suggests something, it sounds great usually until I get home. I really like having, if I write my own stuff, I know what I'm talking about. 
I may have missed something along the way, but I know what I'm talking about. I happened to see Goodfellas the other night on television, and I thought, you know, Jesus Christ, that guy knew what he was talking about. I don't know how he knew, but he knew, and we just believed it. And always with Wendy, when she wrote plays, she knew pretty, at least the beginning few plays, her her plays, their playwrights, and she knew what she was talking about. She felt it, and and that David Mamet, I mean, they, and on and on and on. They weren't journeymen, aren't journeymen writers. They, they had something to say, which is, having something to say is a pretty important facet of all this. You're one of the few that have had a lot of success in plays, musicals, movies as well, but plays and musicals, what, what's the primary difference in what makes a good one? A good play or a good movie? Or either, a good musical? Either one. Like, what makes you go, oh, that's a musical? Or even Hal said, that's a musical. In your mind, what makes a musical versus what makes a play? I think a musical has more range, usually. It's a bigger subject, or it can, it can go further. Uh, I think a play, my kind of play anyway, is sort of more intense. And... and about smaller things. But a lot of plays make musicals too, so uh, I don't know. I just know that something works for me or doesn't work for me. And uh, I know enough not to examine where the ideas come from because I don't know and they just, I don't know how I do it. I don't know why I do it. I just do it. And I think trying to analyze that would be a death blow to it. What do you think about the American, the state of the American play today when you go to see things? I'm delighted that there are so many straight plays on Broadway now. And uh, I think that's exciting. I think it's probably better than the state of musicals right now. Plays seem to be lurching somewhere. The musicals are beginning to go. I mean... They don't all have to succeed all the time, but some of them are pushing the limit. I mean, Hamilton clearly is not something that could be copied because that was that's something that was some almost Shakespearean. It's so perfect, but he pushed it, and uh, things like uh, the band's visit. There are play, musicals that are coming forth. I like that. Uh, I, I, jukebox shows work, and I think that's fine. Uh, I think, uh, for instance, the one about the Jersey Boys was, was, was a good show, and some of them were better than others. And uh, I, I don't know. I think I know that you were involved in Once on This Island, and when Lynn and Steve, I met them when they wrote that, and Andre asked me to come down there and talk to them to help them with the book. And I said, you don't need any help. You can do this. It's fine. And I remember I told them that the leading, they were saying this girl's name was Andrea. I said, I don't think so. I think it's Andrea. And uh, I knew when I read it that it was, one on this production of it was even better. Oh, thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you. And I'm delighted to have Michael Arden doing this now. He's a talented man. He's a super talented guy. So, 
but you know, I I I don't think the state of musicals is at the moment, at least. Well, Broadway doesn't exist like it did before. That's why I'm so surprised that there's so many plays right now. It mostly is about who's going to be there in them, right? It's names. You know, you put, what's her name, Saoirse Ronan in a play, she could be reading Mother Goose and they'd come for a while. But that's always been kind of that way. I'm pretty excited about the state of the art right now. Television's pretty good. Movies this year are good. In times of turmoil, don't you think maybe guess is thinking instead of just being complacent and turning out? So maybe it's worth it. I God help us. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Is it worth going through what we're going through right now in this country for perhaps better arts? But it's interesting that parade seems to have more relevance now than it did 20 years ago in the Clinton era when it was produced the first time. Uh, we hadn't been at war for a long time. Things were fairly complacent. Uh, fairly complacent. Certainly weren't like this. Uh, so prejudice is something that's to be explored right now. Yeah, I'm working on a revival of The Great White Hope, which is one of the few Pulitzer Prize winners that has yet to be revived. How did it feel when you won the Pulitzer? It was totally surreal. I was in Chicago with the first out-of-New-York company of Miss Daisy. Seda Thompson, great Seda Thompson, she was great. And uh, I didn't know that there were Pulitzer Prize finalists. I just didn't know that then. But obviously I had been one. And I was being interviewed at Chicago Sun-Times, and it came over the wire that I had won the Pulitzer. And I was doing this interview. And it was almost like getting bad news. It was such a shock. And my whole family was here, and I was there. And it just, it's still hard to, it's still, after all these years, hard to reconcile me and Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it was some sort of lightning bolt. It was scary, almost. You know? And then uh, to have, for a play, a little bitty tiny play, to have that much success... And still be being done a lot. Yeah, how many, how many times a year is it done, do you know? A lot. A lot. Parades being done a lot. Not not like that, because it's a little more complicated. But even high schools now are doing parade, which is a big... How can they do that? Well, it's one of the great things I love about Broadway that we forget, that plays and musicals that are as important as parade is, that teaches us something about something that people wouldn't talk about, now ripple through the world. And high schools are learning about anti-Semitism. Certain kind of musical theater directors in high school want to do things like Assassins. I don't know if they do Sweeney Todd. I don't guess they could. I don't know. They probably do somewhere. I'm sure they do. But Parade's got a lot of parts. And uh, I think it's exciting that they want to do it. I don't know that I want to go see it. But I, I do know that Somehow, over the course of years, and when I was teaching high school, I did it myself. High schools seem to do things like three penny opera better than big big companies. I don't know because it's all that raw, you know, enthusiasm. Uh, I don't know. I'm delighted that kids still like to do theater, and I guess with Glee and all that stuff, people like to do musicals. I, it's all good, don't you think? I do. 
All right, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and wants to thank you for your incredible contributions to the entertainment industry as a whole uh, by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway that really gets you upset, angry, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? Critics. Critics? Because things are judged. For instance, I have not seen King Kong. I will see King Kong. But I thought the Times, dismissive, not even bothered to review it, was hateful. So those people worked hard on that. And to just poo-poo it and not even review it is... I don't know if it... Also, I think although reviews don't mean as much as they used to, except where it matters, people are going to probably go to see King Kong anyway. I, I think... I think somehow theater critics have more weight than film critics and television critics. And uh, it's too bad. It's too bad that Ben Brantley's been at the Times for longer than Brooks Atkinson was there. Uh, And I don't want to pick fights with critics. I just, I feel lucky when I get by. I don't think, I think that's, it's, I don't know. I, I can't. They're not informing me much. Uh, and I wish shows could just... I suppose we need this open and this person was in it and I'm fine, announce it. But I don't think we need all this bullshit. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So smart, the television or film comparison, because when was the last time anyone read a TV review and decided whether they were going to watch the program or not? Does it happen? Not much. I mean, Netflix now has a wonderful reputation. But I don't read the reviews of the Times of them much. I just think, oh, there's one I want to see. And movies as well, usually. I mean, I, but I, I'm afraid that's not true for the theater. For, for plays, for pre-sold things, it doesn't seem to matter. But the fact that Once on this Island ran, well, a year, over a year, right? Mm-hmm. That must have been word of mouth. But the reviews, pre- I don't know what the reviews are because I didn't read them. Or I did read them and forgot them. But uh, I just think all that smug crap that they churn out. And I don't read all the stuff in them. Do you read all this when it's your shows? Do you read all that stuff, blogs and things? I do not read that stuff anymore. I used to when I started, when I was a bit obsessive about it, but I don't anymore. A lot of it's just jealous, mean-spirited. No, it's... But the King Kong really sort of pushed me over... The Edge, and I have no, I don't know anybody associated or in it or anything. I just thought, what the hell are they doing? Yeah, you're not the first person to say this. There's a real, I think, backlash in the community about whether the review is more about them than about the show itself. I don't think it means, I don't think anybody's going to go or not go because of that. But I, I really think reviews should be, here's what it is, and that's what I think, but I'm on the... I don't learn from review. And with that, I want to thank you so much for for doing this and being here today. And thanks to all of you for listening out there. We will see you next time on the Producers Perspective Podcast. Look
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.